0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about one of the biggest brand names in the world, Marvel, of course, under ownership at Disney, and whether or not those two companies will actually continue to have the right to use some of the most popular characters in their universe after some recent litigation and termination notices have been delivered. Now, if you haven't been following this story, first, I want to thank everybody that posted it in my DMs and my social media. I always appreciate folks flagging stories like this one from me. And based on the volume of comments, I have no doubt that this is of major, major interest to a lot of you. What is of interest? Well, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, and a number of other sites reported yesterday the following. Marvel sues To block heirs from reclaiming Spider Man Doctor Strange copyrights. Now, that might sound like Marvel is engaging in some form of aggressive action, but in fact, what has happened here is that the heirs to the folks that made some of these characters, made some of these stories for Marvel, asked to terminate their copyright. And Marvel has asked the court to say, no, 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 they don't have that termination right in respect of these materials. Now, if that sounds like a winding legal road, you're not wrong, but we're going to try to unwind it for you here in virtual legality. So let's take a look. Marvel filed five lawsuits on Friday seeking to block the heirs of comic book creators from reclaiming copyrights to many of its most popular characters, including Spider-Man, Iron Man, Thor, Black Widow, Captain Marvel, Ant-Man, and Doctor Strange. The move comes after heirs of five Marvel authors filed dozens of termination notices with the U.S. Copyright Office. If the notices were to succeed, They would not prevent Marvel from using the disputed characters, which were created by multiple collaborators, but they would require the studio to make payments to the heirs. Now, there's a lot packed into that small paragraph, but suffice it to say, no, if you're watching this video concerned that the MCU is over and that Disney and Marvel won't have the ability to use the characters in their universe, that is not going to happen. Now, that's not going to happen for a number of reasons, not just because... Even if the heirs were to win here, it still makes the most sense for them to license that back to Marvel and Disney because Marvel and Disney are making money hand over fist with these characters, but also because there is this collaborative environment and Disney and Marvel are going to be retaining certain rights in those characters, except if there were a win here on the termination, the other creators might also seek to terminate. So it's a winding road right there, but no. You don't have to worry that the MCU is ended. If that's the only reason you're here for this video, thank you for stopping by. You can proceed to the next bit of YouTube or podcasting that you want to check out. It's not going to be over however this goes, but money might change hands and that's important as well. Continuing with the article, the attorney for these heirs says this is the deep, dark secret of the comic book industry. If not now, the entire entertainment industry due to the explosion of these superhero franchises. It's about artists' rights. It's literally about injustice. And he represents Larry Lieber, the brother of Stan Lee, and a co-creator of Thor, Iron Man, and Ant-Man, as well as the estates of Steve Ditko, Don Heck, Don Rico, and Gene Colan. In the lawsuits, Marvel argues that the characters were created under work-for-hire arrangements. That's gonna be the watchword for today's video. We're gonna be talking about work-for-hire. Unfortunately, not just work-made-for-hire, in the current version of the Copyright Act, but the much more amorphous version of work made for hire from the 1909 Copyright Act, which is why this question posed by this particular set of legal documents is more interesting, yes, but also more ambiguous as to what would happen at the end of the day. Marvel points to the Kirby case in which the federal court sided with Marvel, and yes, we'll be checking out that, finding that the characters were made under work made for hire arrangements. Since these works were made for hire and thus owned by Marvel, we filed these lawsuits to confirm that the termination notices are invalid and of no legal effect. Toberoff, counsel to the heirs, argues that the comics were not done on a work made for hire basis as the law was understood at the time. He says that the authors were freelancers and independent contractors and that they assigned their copyrighted work to the publisher in exchange for payment. In that case, he argues, their heirs should be allowed to reclaim the copyrights. At the core of these cases is anachronistic and highly criticized interpretation of works made for hire under the 1909 Copyright Act that needs to be rectified. So he's going to be fighting against, he knows it, it's in the subtext of that statement, the precedence of the courts for how they've interpreted that older act. But he's going to fight it because he thinks he can get some money out of it and he can get these uh, license rights to the heirs. The case involved deposition testimony from Stan Lee, who has since passed, in which he described the Marvel method of farming out work to various freelance writers and illustrators. That's the Kirby case. We will be talking about that in this video. And an appellate court upheld the ruling in 2013. We'll be looking at that as well. Tabaroff then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the case settled before the court decided whether to take it up. So the Supreme Court doesn't take up many cases. It takes up a very small percentage of the cases that are presented to it by folks appealing an appellate court decision. We don't know whether the Supreme Court would have ruled differently because the parties settled at that point in time when, at least at that point in time, Marvel appeared to be on the winning side of things, that the trial court held on their behalf and the appellate court reaffirmed the trial court. So with a pending potential appeal in the Supreme Court, the case settled and this counsel got some money. He was counsel to the Kirby case as well, and now he's bringing these cases again. There has been ongoing debate about how comic creators have been unfairly remunerated in light of the cinematic juggernauts their creations inspired. I have made more on SAG residuals than I have made on creating the character for my one line that got cut, said Ed Brubaker, who helped create the Winter Soldier, and which has become a very popular character in the MCU. So that's the baseline. But you might be sitting back and saying, Rick, if they assigned the intellectual property, How can they terminate it at all? What is work made for hire? What does work made for hire have to do with any of this? And to that, I say, I'm glad you're here. Now, you might have seen a video that we did. I think it was earlier this week. It's been a long week about Marty O'Donnell's ownership of the Destiny music or lack thereof and how it was made by all appearances to those of us sitting here on the outside on a work made for hire basis. What is work made for hire? We went to the copyright office to see that they say copyright law protects a work from the time it is created in a fixed form. But there is an exception to who the author of that is based on a works made for hire concept. If a work is made for hire, the employer is considered the author, even if an employee actually created the work. The employer can be a firm, an organization, or an individual. So if you fall under this bucket of work made for hire, here's here's what happens. The author, the person that put pen to paper, or in the case of Marty O'Donnell, composed this music, was never the author of it under the law. Who was the author? The entity that paid him the money to create that thing. So as of 1978, the current Copyright Act makes clear what work made for hire means. It means something performed or prepared by an employee, or if it's under a contract, a work specially ordered or commissioned for use as a contribution to a collective work as a part of a motion picture or other audiovisual work. If the parties expressly agree in their contract, that it will be considered a work made for hire. Those are pretty bright line rules, even though there are still ambiguities there. If we go and we look at that video that we did earlier, we see how that's covered in modern day contracts. It says, consultant agrees that the work product is hereby deemed work made for hire as defined in the Copyright Act and all copyrights therein automatically vest in the company. But if for any reason, such work product does not constitute work made for hire, because we don't know what a court's going to do in 10 years or 20 years. Consultant hereby irrevocably assigns it to the company for no additional consideration. So the way you standard write these kinds of documents is it's work made for hire. But if for some reason someone determines later on that it's not, I hereby assign it to you. The problem with that is if you fall in the assignment bucket, the current Copyright Act has a little wrinkle that current copyright holders like Disney and Marvel are trying to deal with and that is the following termination of transfers and licenses covering extended renewal terms in the case of any copyright subsisting in either its first or renewal term on january 1st 1978 the date of the enactment of the current version of the copyright act other than a copyright in a work made for hire the exclusive or non-exclusive grant of a transfer or license of the renewal copyright or any right under it executed before 1978 is subject to termination under the following conditions. We're going to talk about those conditions in just a second, but what's important to take away from this is if you had it and you assigned it to somebody, and if it's before 1978, and most of these are before 1978, some of these are going to cross that threshold do I'll talk about the fact that there's a termination right in things after 1978 as well, but if you assigned it to somebody, the Copyright Act actually says you can end that assignment no matter what your contract said. If you put in your contract that it was perpetual and irrevocable and all this good stuff that would ordinarily protect you in a lot of circumstances under contract law, Copyright Act swings in and says, for this specific thing, granting someone a right to your intellectual property, you can terminate it on certain conditions. What are those conditions? Well, in the case of a grant executed by a person or persons other than the author, termination of the grant may be affected by the surviving person or person who executed it. In the case of a grant executed by one or more of the authors of the work, termination of the grant may be affected to the extent of a particular author's share in the ownership of the renewal copyright by the author who executed or if such author is dead, remember we're talking about heirs, by the person or persons who under Clause 2 of this subsection own and are entitled to exercise a total of more than one half of that author's termination interest. And I apologize for reading you a full paragraph of legalese there, but what's important is that when you're dealing with authors that have passed, we get flipped over into this other section that says... When an author is dead, the termination interest, the right to end this grant, is held as follows. The widow or widower owns the entire interest, unless there's kids or grandkids. If there are kids or grandkids, they own the entire termination interest, unless there's a widow or widower, in which case, in either of those circumstances, it's split in half for those two groups. We then see the rights of the author's children and grandchildren are in all cases divided among them and exercised on a per stirpes basis, law isn't it fun but that means that if there are six people that fall within that category it's one sixth of one half if there's also a widower split between them and what you have to get to to actually terminate again is more than one half 50 plus percent plus one iota of interest so basically you have the termination rights acceding to the widow or widower and then the kids and grandkids and if none of those folks are alive then it's to the executor, administrator, personal representative, or trustee of the estate in question. So those folks have the right to terminate. When do they have the right to terminate? Termination of the grant may be affected at any time during a period of five years. It's a five year window, beginning at the 56 years from the date copyright was originally secured or 1978, whichever is later. We're obviously talking about the former category here. 56 years. From when we think the copyright was secured, the termination shall be effected by serving an advance notice in writing upon the grantee or the grantee's successor in title. And the notice shall state the effective date of the termination, which shall fall within the five year period specified by clause three of this subsection. And the notice shall be served not less than two or more than 10 years before that date. So, like most things in copyright law, you got to hit these very specific regulated things. In this case, it's a five year window, about 55 to 60 years from when the copyright actually was first entered into, and you have to give notice of at least two or 10 years before you intend to terminate. Termination of the grant may be affected notwithstanding any agreement to the contrary, including an agreement to make a will or to make any future grant. Now, for those of you proto lawyers out there, you might also be wondering, well, if they lose the right to the IP, can they even distribute something like a Spider-Man movie or a Doctor Strange? Yes. Yes. A derivative work prepared under authority of the grant before its termination may continue to be utilized under the terms of the grant after its termination, but this privilege does not extend to the preparation after the termination of other derivative works. So, everything that's in existence when this would be affected, that can stay just fine. Everything that is being made, even if it's in the final stages of preparation, will have to go through some kind of license with somebody that has the right now that you lost before this grant of termination was executed. So... That's what copyright holders are dealing with, is if it isn't a work made for hire, you see other than a copyright and a work made for hire, then that author can take it back within certain windows. And that window is, is 56 here. The window for things made after 1978 is 35 years with a slight change to 40 years from publication. But that, that's not important. We can assume that they're not silly with the termination notices they filed and they do hit the windows that are required under the Copyright Act, which leaves us in a situation where the entire case here is determined by whether or not this thing is a work made for hire. Because if it's not, then the Copyright Act controls in black and white, an author has the right to terminate their grant in these specific windows. And that's what Marvel has fought against, says, for instance, in the fight against Ditko's estate, defendant Patrick Ditko, in his capacity as the administrator of Steve Ditko's estate, has served termination notices purportedly issued under that act in an invalid attempt to acquire certain rights to iconic Marvel comic book characters and stories published between 1962 and 1966 in virtually identical circumstances. And the virtually is doing some work there. We're going to talk about that in just a second. This court, as affirmed by the Second Circuit, granted Marvel summary judgment, finding that all of illustrator Jack Kirby's contributions were between 1958 and 1963 were done at Marvel's instance and expense. Keep that phrase in mind as well. And thus were works made for hire. So they scroll down, they scroll down. This is not a terribly long document, but they basically say, look, the works were made for hire because they were created at Marvel's instance and expense. The notices are invalid as a matter of law because the works were created as works made for hire. And any contributions Steve Ditko made to the works were done at the instance of Marvel's editorial staff who had the right to exercise creative control over Steve Ditko's contributions. So court, we're asking you to affirm that they don't have the rights under that section of the copyright law. Now, unfortunately for everybody involved in this, as we said, this doesn't fall under the better definitions that were established in 1978. So any court, including the ones at issue today in 2021, has to go back and figure out what anybody meant in the 1909 copyright law. And here's just a very short circular from the Copyright Office. It says, Section 26 of that law, provided that the definition of an author shall include an employer in the case of a work made for hire, the law did not define a work made for hire, however, or establish criteria for determining whether a work was made for hire. So the court's have had to figure this out for themselves. There are some guidelines an applicant may consider in determining whether a work copyrighted under the 1909 law was made for hire, including the existence of a contract or other written agreement which addresses the circumstances of a work's creation or authorship, payment of wages or other remuneration, the right of the employer to direct and supervise the creation of the work, which is what we saw referenced in Marvel's Ask for Declaratory Judgment today. However... We do have a court case, as mentioned in the Variety article, that goes over this a little bit more extensively. And a lot of it's going to come down to how a court in 2021 might interpret what is known, apparently, not really a comic book aficionado, so I apologize for those of you that are, as the Marvel method. And we'll talk about that more in just a second. But here's the Kirby case. And this will be the last major document that we look at in this video. It says, this litigation concerns the property rights in 262 works published by Marvel between 1958 and 1963. It is undisputed that Kirby was a freelancer. That is, he was not a formal employee of Marvel and not paid a fixed wage or salary. So even in 1978, they wouldn't have the easy bucket for works made for hire, which is that you're an employee, we provide you an office, you get benefits, whatever else it might be. Instead, Kirby was an independent contractor of Marvel. Marvel, usually in the person of Stan Lee, was free to reject Kirby's drawings or ask him to redraft them. When Marvel accepted drawings, it would pay Kirby by check at a per-page rate. Lee assigned Kirby, whom he considered his best artist, a steady stream of work during that period. According to Lee, at the relevant time, artists worked using what the parties call the Marvel method. The first step was for Lee to meet with an artist at a plotting conference. Lee would provide the artist with a brief outline or synopsis of an issue. Sometimes he would just talk with the artist about ideas. The artist would then draw it any way they wanted to. Then a writer such as Lee would put in all the dialogue and the captions, and according to Lee, he maintained the ability to edit and make changes or reject what the other writers or artists had created. You see this reference in other places around the internet. CBR has their own definition of the Marvel method. It says the Marvel method of writing a comic book involves a comic book writer coming up with a plot for a story, whether by himself or with an artist, and then the writer gives that plot to the artist who decides how to implement the plot in the standard amount of pages allotted to them. Then the writer comes in and adds dialogue to the story. And as you can obviously tell, this would allow a single writer to work on a whole bunch of stories at once, as he could be plotting one book, scripting another, all while the artists are out there laying out a couple of other books. This was designed to allow Marvel to churn out more comic books faster. And that makes a lot of sense when you're running the business. But the question becomes, when you use a system like this, especially if you're using independent contractors, is there enough control of the process as with respect to any given contractor, that you can fall into the bucket required under the 1909 copyright precedence to frame that artist or other contributor as someone that is under Marvel's control. And that's the question that the court had to deal with. Kirby had a freer hand within this framework than did comparable artists. For example, Lee explained that instead of telling Kirby page by page what to draw, Lee might simply tell him to devote five pages to this, five pages to that, and three pages to that. It is beyond dispute, moreover, that Kirby made many of the creative contributions, often thinking up and drawing characters on his own, influencing, plotting, or pitching fresh ideas. Now, I want you to keep all this in mind because Kirby might have a different relationship to Marvel than the other folks that are bringing the claims today. You'll note in a number of areas here that the Second Circuit finds That Kirby was the right-hand man, that he had this freer framework, that he was allowed to do more things, and more specifically, that he had knowledge that when he made something for Marvel, it was very likely that they were going to use it, accept it, and pay him for it. And that might not have been the case with these other heirs, and that could call into question the case before us today a little bit more than the Kirby precedent here. Again, I told you, that virtually is doing some work. Now we have to do a lot of scrolling because in fact the Second Circuit had to deal with some jurisdictional issues that they decided and that don't matter really for our conversation here, some other things, expert testimony, and now we get to the merit. Section 304C, which is what we looked at, provides that termination rights under that section do not exist with respect to works made for hire. Where a work is made for hire, copyright law deems the employer to be the author for purposes of copyright ownership. The hired party, although the author in the colloquial sense, therefore never owned the copyrights to assign. There's nothing to revert or nothing to terminate because in a works made for hire scenario, they were never the author in accordance with the law. To determine whether a work is a work made for hire within the meaning of section 304C, we apply case law interpreting that term as used in the 1909 act, the law in effect when the works were created. This requires us to apply what is known as the instance and expense test. Because the 1909 Act did not define employer or works made for hire, the task of shaping these terms fell to the courts. And then we get a long resuscitation of the history of these court cases and arrive at these general principles. We have stated as a general rule that a work is made at the hiring party's instance and expense when the employer induces the creation of the work and has the right to direct and supervise the manner in which the work is carried out. So as opposed to someone that maybe made a comic book four years before presenting it to Marvel or DC. This is talking about a situation where Marvel asks for a story or a character or something to be done. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that specific. It doesn't have to be something that comes out of the mind of Stan Lee. It can just say, hey, we want this comic book. We want it to be mystical. Go nuts. And that might be enough. Instance refers to the extent to which the hiring party provided the impetus for, participated in or had the power to supervise the creation of the work. And actual creative contributions or direction strongly suggest that the work is made at the hiring party's instance. So if Marvel actually participated in this process, and again, the court is really considering Stan Lee to be Marvel for this purpose, then that's going to find in favor of there being instance with respect to whether or not this thing was created. The right to direct and supervise the manner in which the work is carried out, even if not exercised, is in some circumstances enough to satisfy the instance requirement and maybe sufficient, for example, where the hiring party makes a particularly strong showing that the work was made at its expense. Said another way, the situation here that the Kirby estate tried to present was that, yeah, they might have had the right to reject things. They might have had the right to use some of these supervisory powers, but for the most part, they were accepting everything that Kirby made. The court says eh, that's not enough if they have the right to hold back, to reject these things, then that is enough to give them potentially work made for higher treatment. The expense component refers to the resources the hiring party invests in the creation of the work. We have, at least in some cases, continued the tradition of treating the incidence of a traditional employment relationship as relevant to the analysis. Applying these principles to the facts in the record before us, a challenging endeavor in some respects, we conclude that the works were created at Marvel's instance and expense. So it's important to note that the court finds this to be challenging in certain respects because that challengingness could open up a crack in the door for the heirs that are talking about this situation today. With respect to instance, the court is a little bit more clearly on Marvel's side. The evidence, construed in favor of the Kirbys, establishes beyond dispute that the works in question were made at Marvel's instance. Although Jack Kirby was a freelancer, his working relationship with Marvel between the years of 1958 And 1963 was close and continuous. And the reason this is all construed in favor of the Kirby's, where the court is giving maximal effect to whatever the Kirby estate is claiming here, is because this is a motion for summary judgment or a finding of summary judgment at the trial court level, which means you assume that everything that was just dismissed is correct and do they have a case anyway. So they're construing everything in favor of the Kirby's, which does suggest that the case isn't even strong enough to survive that kind of analysis. Kirby's works during this period were hardly self-directed projects in which he hoped Marvel as one of several potential publishers might have an interest. Rather, he created the relevant works pursuant to Marvel's assignment or with Marvel specifically in mind. Marvel also played at least some creative role with respect to the works. The Kirby's attempts to avoid this conclusion are unsuccessful. Their argument is that the right to supervise referred to in our case law requires a legal, presumably contractual right, We find no hint of this requirement in our case law applying the instance and expense test, nor do the Kirby's provide a principled reason why Marvel's active involvement in the creative process, coupled with its power to reject pages and request that they be redone, should not suffice. So the court is pretty animated and sure that in terms of instance that Marvel wins the day. Expense is a closer question. Whether the works were created at Marvel's expense presents a more difficult question. We ultimately find ourselves in agreement with the district court and in favor of Marvel here too. The facts underlying the expense component are not in dispute. Marvel paid Kirby a flat rate per page for those pages it accepted and no royalties. It did not pay for Kirby's supplies or provide him with office space. It was free to reject Kirby's pages and pay him nothing for them. The record contains anecdotal evidence that Marvel did in fact reject Kirby's work or require him to redo it on occasion, if less often than it did the work of other artists. Keep that in mind. But what frequency it did so is unclear. Because Marvel argues it paid Kirby a sum certain when it accepted his pages, irrespective of whether the pages required edits or additions, were ultimately published or were part of a comic book that was a commercial success, it took on the risk of financial loss. The Kirbys, instead, urged us to focus not on the risk Marvel took at the time it purchased the pages, but on the risk Kirby took when he set out to create them. This argument, and this is important, might give us pause if Kirby's relationship with Marvel comprised discrete engagements with materially uncertain prospects for payment, or indeed, if he undertook to create the works independent of Marvel. But there is no evidence of which we are aware to either effect. The evidence suggests instead that Marvel and Kirby had a standing engagement whereby Kirby would produce drawings designed to fit within specific Marvel universes that his previously purchased pages had helped to define. When Kirby sat down to draw then... It was not in the hope that Marvel or some other publisher might one day be interested enough in them to buy, but with the expectation established through their ongoing mutually beneficial relationship that Marvel would pay him. And here's where I say the other heirs, and I don't know their relationships, maybe because someone can put in the comments what these other relationships might be, probably didn't have the certainty that Mr. Kirby did on this score. And to the extent that certainty is removed, You see, the argument might give them pause. If it is a riskier endeavor to go through this pay-for-pages kind of concept, the court appears to be cracking the door open to suggest it might not be a work made for hire. But we don't know what that would be because that was not the controversy before the court at the time. As it stands with Mr. Kirby, we think that Marvel's payment of a flat rate and its contribution of both creative and production value in light of the party's relationship as a whole Is enough to satisfy the expense requirement and the court then dismisses there being any possibility for an agreement to the contrary because it wasn't covered at all basically by anyone evidence wasn't presented and that's what we're looking at today it's the same question marvel isn't wrong that it's the same question but even in the second circuit's decision making here we didn't get argumentation about the specifics regarding these new heirs, their situations, and 1909's version of work made for hire is so attenuated and ambiguous that any given court might find a different way. In this particular instance, don't forget, there was actually a settlement. The Kirby folks were going to appeal to the Supreme Court before the Supreme Court could decide whether or not they would take up the case. There was a settlement between the parties. We don't know what the contours of that was. We can anticipate that money was paid out uh, by Marvel. Now, a much deeper pocket with Disney and the success of the MCU. And it's not really a surprise that counsel to the Kirby estate there would bring these other estate claims when he thought they had come to fruition, when that window was open. But again, the big takeaway here is not that anybody's going to lose the rights to make MCU movies, to make Spider-Man movies, if you're Disney, to license the rights to Spider-Man out to Sony, etc., etc. These are all still going to happen, and they're going to happen however this court case goes, because the heirs still know that even if they have those intellectual property rights, their highest, best, and most importantly, most lucrative use is in the hands of Disney and the MCU. But the question remains... Was the Marvel method actually work made for hire? Was it something else? And maybe we'll start to get an answer to that depending on how far this goes. If you enjoy discussions about pop culture, legal business, and other technical issues for video games and other things please consider supporting the channel we think we're pretty much the only folks doing this kind of commentary in this space we've got a patreon we've got other ways to support the channel if you're so interested or just subscribing telling your friends we're having these conversations honestly if you look up spider-man on this channel He has been present in more videos than I would have suspected when I set this up a few years ago. So you might be interested in some other topics we've run on that. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only.